Good morning, Harvest. My name is Jamie. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church. Grateful you're with us this morning and grateful we get to spend some more time in the Gospel of John, picking up this week in chapter 16, verse 12. Now, we've been working our way through for some time in chapters 13 through 17, <clears throat> in a lot of ways, is the pivotal moment of the book. It's Jesus beginning to, to share in one evening with these disciples what's coming, what's life going to look like after he leaves them. He starts introducing this idea of the Spirit in more detail and the suffering that's going to come and the power of the Spirit and the ministry of the Spirit. And the disciples don't yet have a good category for a Messiah that must die and be resurrected. So all these things are colliding. And this moment, if you can imagine, though they don't have great clarity with everything Jesus is saying, they know something about this evening is unique. Something different is happening. And so as we begin this passage at, at verse 12, we'll see that Jesus is saying, I've got some more to tell you. And they're leaning in. And he says, but I can't tell you yet. And that's going to set off a little uh, confusion for the disciples. Now we know from chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the the thesis statement of John, his purpose in writing is encapsulated that, that we would know that Jesus is the Christ and believing upon him have life in his name. That's our filter. That's our grid through which we process the entire gospel. In many ways, John's gospel is the most evangelistic of all the gospels. And so we reach 16 verse 12 and he's beginning to say, look, this new thing's happening. There's more to tell you. And as they're leaning in, he pauses and says, I can't tell you everything yet. Look at it with me. Verse 16, verse 12. Stand if you're able as we read the word of God. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while and you will, no and you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, that a little while you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you'll not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being, uh, for the joy that a human being has come into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take the joy from you. In that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy Maybe for us, John chapter 16, verses 12 through 24, the word of God for the people of God and God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do ask this morning 
that in your kindness you would speak. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truths this morning that pertain to your son, to the spirit, to ideas like sorrow and joy. And we praise you that what we read and what we hear in the Bible is true and that you would, by the power of your spirit and your kindness towards us, shape us more and more, mold us into the image of your son. In Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen. Right now we're going to get to, in a bit, a little bit of this tongue twister where Jesus says, I'm going to disappear for a little while, but then you'll see me in a little while. And so I said, what do you mean by a little while? And then he said, he's going to go for a little while and then come back in a little while. And all that is actually going to be made pretty clear. Right? It's not as uh, disorienting as, as the disciples first hear it to be. But before we get there, note that verse 12, he says, look guys, there's some more things to tell you. Where I've got more, but you cannot bear them now. What is Jesus talking about? And why, with everything that he's already told them, so many things that are difficult to understand. He's spoken in parables. He is uh, proclaimed to be the fulfillment of prophecy. He's mentioned things to them like a sacrifice. He's rebuked religious leaders. He's tried to show them a new way of of grace and not self-righteousness, of all the things that Jesus has taught them, and he's taught them many difficult things, why now at this point does he say he cannot teach them anymore because they cannot bear them? Well, there's a real sense in which verse 12 cannot be understood unless verse 13 is brought into view. For in verse 13, he promises them something, when the spirit of truth comes. See, the disciples, until this moment, are capped in their understanding. Sure, they can perceive some things. Sure, they can intellectually assent to some ideas. But to get to the depth of the reality of things like the crucifixion, of resurrection, of salvation, to really begin to uh, uh, unwind and approximate in their own lives who Jesus really is and what he actually came to do, what Jesus is telling them is, your ability to understand is limited, save one thing happening, the spirit of truth coming. And that's why someone can live an entire life, they can be Uh, tangentially attached to a church. They can be saturated in relationships with Christians. They can be attending Bible studies, prayer meetings. They can be doing all of these things that are religious and, 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 and almost Christian discipline in nature. And still, after saturating their lives with these types of religious rhythms, still not know the Son of God. In fact, it's what Paul would write to the church of Corinth in chapter 2 when he says, We impart this in words, not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths of those who are spiritual. For the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. There's a biblical reality that unless the Spirit comes, unless the Spirit indwells, Unless the Spirit illuminates, unless the Spirit empowers, unless the Spirit takes the scales, 
that lie over our hearts, our minds, our eyes, unless the Spirit does His work, ultimately we cannot see. Ultimately we cannot understand. And unless the Spirit indwells, then ultimately we have no power to live a life that is oriented towards the glory of the Son of God. And so here, what Jesus is saying is, you've been able to grasp some things right now, but to truly know who I am, what's about to happen, for you to really be able to interpret and understand what's going to go on at the cross and in his resurrection, he says, guys, the Spirit's got to come first. So when we come to God's Word, we try to join with the psalmist and say, Spirit, open our eyes that we can see beautiful things in your Word. It's the reality that left to ourselves, our understanding is limited. And our ability to perceive is hindered. So Jesus says, you're going to know. You will understand, but something's got to happen before you can understand. That's what he says in verse 13. The spirit of truth must come. Now, when he comes, he's going to do a couple things. The first is this. He's going to guide you into all truth. So everything they need to know, derivatively, uh, through them, to us, by the ministry of the spirit, everything we need to know about the person and work of God, about the life that can be found in his name. Jesus is saying the Spirit is going to guide you into that. It's a promise, a guarantee. And here's how we can trust it. How do we know that he's going to do it? He says, for he will, speaking of the Spirit, not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. So why can we trust that if Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes that we're still okay? How can we trust that if the living Word of God departs that the indwelling Spirit is going to teach us the same exact reality? And here Jesus makes the point, the Spirit will not speak to you in isolation. He does not somehow exist over here apart from the person of God because He is the person of God. Furthermore, if you ever hear someone, you know, God showed me this, God revealed this to me, God spoke to me, and then whatever comes next is not congruent with how God's revealed himself in his word. They may say God says, but we can look back and say, no, he did not. The Spirit doesn't operate like that. The Spirit does not communicate in some isolated way truths that are incongruent with the person of God because the Spirit is God. I was just made aware or, or familiar with recently a church who's lost their pastor. Uh, a pastor had an affair uh, and uh, tragically is, is unrepentant. So much so that, that blinded by sin, sort of engrossed in his sin, has come to the conclusion that God has endorsed this new relationship. God's blessed it. Love is there. 
When someone says something like that, it's very easy to look back and say, that is not true. That is coming from a spirit, but not the spirit. For the spirit does not communicate isolated, contradictory truths to what God has already revealed. So Jesus says, you can trust him. He's part of the Godhead. And he's going to come and guide you into truth. You can trust the truth. And look what else, what he says he's going to do. He'll declare these things to you. He will glorify me, verse 14. So what is the purpose of the Spirit coming? What is the purpose of him guiding us into truth? What's the purpose of him indwelling us and empowering us to live the, 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 the Christian life that God has prescribed and laid before him the entire purpose of his ministry is ultimately aimed at the glory of Jesus it's that Jesus's name would be made famous that that worth and value that is only becoming of the son of God is truly uh, uh, described uh, before man that is prescribed to him he's he's worthy of it and and here Jesus says when the spirit comes that's what he's going to lead you into. That's why he's going to give you understanding. That's why he's going to guide you that you would be brought not just to a place of truth, but to a life that is aimed at the glory of Christ. And so, guys, there's more coming, but hang on. I can't tell you yet because you couldn't understand it. Once the Spirit comes, it will be illuminated. And everything about me that the Spirit communicates to you, A, you can trust it. And B, it is aimed at my glory. And the same is true for us. The Spirit comes to guide us into a full understanding of the person of God. The Spirit comes to illuminate our sin, to dispel the darkness, to bring understanding and regeneration and light of the gospel of Christ and we can trust him and he then empowers us to live lives that are solely focused on the glory of Jesus Christ amen now 16 is a transition he's going to move from telling them this this predictive work of the spirit this promised work of the spirit he's going to transition to a logistical conversation of now what is directly in front of them. And this is where he begins this uh, a little while a repetition. That a little while you'll see me no longer. And again in a little while you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? That a little while you, and you will not see me. And again in a little while you will see me. And this because I'm going to the Father. What does he mean by this? The Greek there is, huh? What is he saying? This does not make sense to us. Now, Jesus knows that they're confused. And he highlights the singular component of their confusion. Notice in verse 18, what does he mean by a little while? Another way of, of looking at that is they are solely focused on how long. How long? So Jesus just introduced to them something that is understandably difficult. The removal of his presence. Saying, guys, I'm, I'm going away. 
There's a time frame coming here when you will not see me. They hear this and they immediately know, now this is hard. This is difficult. We don't desire this. This disappearance of Jesus is going to be painful. It's going to bring hardship into their life. And all they want to know, how long? How long will it be hard? How long will it be difficult? How long will it be painful? How long will it be sorrowful? How long must we endure this circumstance that they do not desire? Maybe you can identify with that. I certainly can. That in the midst of difficulty or pain or sorrow or hardship, the singular question that, that sort of ushers itself to the forefront is, how long, God? How long will this last? How long will it be painful? How long will it be difficult? How long must I be in sorrow or sadness? How long? It's the same question they have. And Jesus, knowing their question, does not answer it. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The disciples are concerned with time. Jesus is consumed with transformation. Don't miss that. The disciples are wondering, how long is this going to take? And Jesus is saying, how long is it going to take? Though an understandable question is not the right question. They're concerned with time. Jesus is concerned with transformation. This idea of going from sorrow to joy. Now, the Son of God, arguably being the greatest preacher that ever lived, follows up a really difficult point with a practical illustration. And so to try to bring home what he's saying, this idea of process, of transformation, uh, of wanting these disciples to really get what he means, when lament and sorrow are turned into joy, he goes to the process of childbirth. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Okay, so here Jesus is saying, just think about the process of, of a child being birthed. I mean, it's a nine a 10-month process where there is conception, morning sickness, fatigue, nausea, difficulty, contractions, intensifying pain, new life. And what he's trying to get these guys to understand is for most of that time, for the woman that's giving birth, it is painful, hard, difficult, 
But when mama holds that baby for the first time, she forgets the pain. And there is pure, unadulterated joy. And he's saying, disciples, harvest, that reality will mark seasons of our lives. And in those seasons, how long, how long, how long, timing questions will cause us to miss transformation reality. Sorrow to joy. But don't miss this. Most of us, and me too, think about this idea of going from sorrow to joy as an idea of replacement. A caused me sorrow. So this A is going to disappear so that B, something altogether different and new, can come. And when something new comes, what caused me sorrow is displaced and then it is replaced by this new thing. And this new thing is what brings the joy. And Jesus is saying, that is not what I am teaching. He's actually saying true joy, deep abiding spirit empowered joy happens like this when the thing that once caused you sorrow actually becomes the thing that gives you joy that's why he picks childbirth what causes the sorrow and the sickness and the difficulty the child what causes the inexpressible joy, the child. It's when the thing that once was an origin of sorrow is transformed by the Spirit into what gives us deep, unflinching, trusting joy and there is no greater picture of this than the cross and the resurrection so when Jesus is telling them a little while and you will not see me that's his crucifixion and his death he says you're going to lament and the world's going to rejoice that the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world is going to, for just a moment, feel victorious and you will weep. But in just a little while, you will see me again. That's resurrection. And when you see me again, when you see me walk out of that grave, he's going to say, the very thing that brought you sorrow is going to be transformed into the most unbelievable source of joy. And praise God, our God is a God of resurrection. Amen. That when they looked at Christ on the cross and saw his execution, it was despair, it was darkness, it was sorrow. 
but the resurrection turns that event into our salvation. That the sin that was ours, that demanded a penalty, was paid by Jesus. And we were left to ourselves with with no ability to bring ourselves to God. God brought us to himself through the cross. And so what once was full of sorrow, we look at now and sing with joy. Why? The resurrection. God is a God that takes sorrow, transforms it into joy. Not only does Jesus know it's a, it's a hard truth, and he illustrates it in a way to try to bring the reality home, but then he gives us the key for it becoming reality. And that's what he does as he ends the, 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 the passage in the, this teaching to disciples. Look at it with me in verse 22. So also, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. And no one will ever take your joy from you. Isn't that true? Can anyone take from you the joy given by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Somebody say no. No way. It is there, unchanging, abiding, forever. And in that day, you'll ask nothing of me. Now, this is about to be a little bit confusing. This first statement on you will ask nothing of me is not a statement on prayer. That's a statement that references their earlier conversation. They were asking him how long. And what Jesus is saying is, once I'm resurrected and you see me, you won't need to ask those questions anymore. That'll be answered. So the how long is answered. Now this next component where he's saying, what you ask of me is a statement on prayer. Y'all with me on that? So this first one, it answers kind of the logistics they were troubled by earlier on the how long. But then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, this is talking about prayer, he will give it to you. And until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And I think it was some months ago, I can't honestly remember when, we were in John 14. We've already unpacked a bit of what it means to, to pray in Jesus' name, to ask in Jesus' name, and, and you can certainly go back and resource that and, and find that in our sermon archives, but we'll touch on it briefly this morning. There are at least three things going on when we ask something in Jesus' name. Okay, now remember, the end point of this prayer, Jesus says, that your joy may be full. That's what once was sorrow will lead to joy. What's the key to getting there? Jesus says, praying in my name, asking for it. Asking that God would do the transformation, approaching the throne via the name of Jesus. So how do we do that in a way that Jesus is biblically prescribing? Well, I think there are at least three things going on. Here's the first one. It's the most straightforward. Is to ask something in Jesus' name is to pray something that aligns with the person and work of God. His character, the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, God's word. So... You can think of that first one, it's an alignment prayer. In some ways, it's asking God what Jesus would ask. That's the idea of praying in his name. That's the first one. The second one would be, and though this one may be a little less obvious, the second one is an acceptance of the process. 
So if we're going to pray in Jesus' name, and, and if what we're going to ask is to align with the person and life of Jesus Christ, well, the life of Jesus Christ includes this idea of crucifixion and resurrection. It includes this idea of pain to sorrow. It includes this idea of there being a time of transformation. And there are times in our lives when that is difficult and painful. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we are accepting the reality that God might not answer how long. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're accepting the reality that Jesus is more concerned with transformation than he is with time. When we pray in Jesus' name, we're accepting the process that God really can, and this is also a promise, take what was sorrowful and in a way that only the Spirit of God can do, make it a source of joy. Because so to ask in Jesus' name, there's an alignment that has to go on. There's an acceptance, uh, uh, an admission that, yes, we receive the process. We understand it. And then lastly, it is a proclamation of dependence. That in Jesus' name acknowledges that Jesus has to do it. That we can't. That left to ourselves, there is complete inability I can't turn sorrow to joy. I can't fix it. I can't transform myself. God has to do it. So I'm wanting to align myself to ask the things that Jesus would ask. I'm going to accept the process where, yes, it may be painful. And yes, God may not say how long. But I trust the promise that he's going to get it done. And then there is an admission that if that's all going to happen... It's the power of Christ that's going to make it possible. Amen? And so Jesus tells these guys, look, there's a lot more. There's a lot more to understand, to know, to learn. But until the Spirit comes and harvest, unless the Spirit comes into the life of someone and illuminates the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus saying, you just simply aren't going to understand. And when the Spirit comes, she says, trust Him. He's not going to teach anything that's contradictory to my word. He's going to empower you to understand. He does not speak to you in isolation because He is part of the Godhead. And His aim is to bring glory to the Son of God. And it's the Spirit's desire to make that aim true of us. Then he says, hey, I'm disappearing, but just for a little bit. And instead of asking timing questions, ask transformation questions. And when you're really hurting and the sorrow is deep, trust that I'll bring you through. And ask in my name that I will do it. Because that will align you with the person of God. That will show our acceptance of this transformation process. And it will declare our dependence that only God can get it done. So he prepares these men and via them and his word, us. That when difficulty comes, we're asking God about transformation. 
that when we don't fully understand things, we're asking the Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to reveal it to us. And Harvest, there is no greater transformation than crucifixion to resurrection, which then makes possible the greatest transformation humanly considered from enemy of God to child, from old creation to new. And if this morning you feel yourself going, I am littered with sin. I can't do it. I don't want to be this person anymore. I don't want to be lost and despairing. I don't want to be without God. Then the greatest transformation you can imagine is affected by grace through faith and the power of the Spirit by trusting Jesus really did die on that cross for the sins of the world. And God really did raise him from the dead so that you and I could become children of God. Amen. We serve the God of resurrection. We serve the God that turns sorrow into joy. And we serve the God that gives us the spirit to live the lives that he prescribes and to understand things that without him would be far too wonderful to comprehend. Let's pray. And Father, we do ask that your spirit would teach us. And we ask that when sorrow and difficult come, that we would, we would trust that you have a process, that you are, you are bent towards taking sorrow and, and, and turning it to joy. <clears throat> that in our lives when these seasons come, that you would remind us of these disciples' own confusion of of cross and, and resurrection, they really did weep. They really were despairing. And then they really did see you raised from the dead. And what a picture of sorrow to joy. And I, I, I firstly pray that if that transformation, if your spirit would move and make that true of someone this morning, that someone would leave hearts a new creation, a repentance and faith in the work of Jesus. But for those of us, whom you've already graciously known, we ask that if we're in a season of sorrow and trial and hardship, remind us that in the name of Jesus, you turn sorrow into joy. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.